So a little weird piece of demographic trivia, there are now more mothers employed than fathers employed in the prime working population. Wow. Kind of cool. I don't it know is. why. It's just very fascinating. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure, where we attempt to disguise our voices as if we are running a 1950s radio program. <clears throat> da, 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 da. Uh, yes, well, not, not very well, but we're trying. Oh, okay. Well, my mom says I'm very trying. Yeah. Um, she also says I'm very special. We have to say that correctly. Special. Yes, I'm special. Spatial. Spatial. So uh, welcome to the program. Welcome to the Personal Wealth Coach. And if you've made it through that, that was our first disclosure. Uh, next disclosure is this program is called the Personal Wealth Coach. Wait, I already said that. Yes, because disclosures are made to be repetitive and redundant. Right. At the same time. Yes. Um, the Personal Wealth Coach is not just the name of this program. There's some weird uh, coincidences occurring here. Uh, Jeff and Jake McClure are also the principals at an SEC-registered investment advisor named The Personal Wealth Coach, uh, which is the same name as this program. And that's strange. The program predates the firm in its existence uh, in that The Personal Wealth Coach was a radio program long before we had an independent registered investment advisory firm under the same name. Just because the firm and the people working at the firm are registered with the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC somehow believes that we are golden children um, or any other color of children, I suppose. Um, their job is to regulate us, not to approve or disapprove or whatever. Their job is to make sure that uh, we stay ethical. So if you find us being unethical on the air, they're the people to tell on us about. Um Yes. I just said that the firm is registered to give investment advice. Those are technical terms. If you say investment advice, a new legal layer comes on. We can't do that on the air. Investment advice is fiduciary. You got to know your client in depth. Then you have to be private about the advice. It's really difficult to do that on a broadcast. Um, it, it wouldn't be called a broadcast if it were private. So it doesn't mean anybody's listening, but it's still being broadcast in case they wanted to. Uh, in fact, uh, statistics show that the listenership drops uh, drastically when people start talking about economics, which is really weird because our ratings seem to be fairly good. So there's some statistical anomalies in Central Texas in our podcast listenership of just that's another disclosure. Uh, so mm. SEC doesn't really give us any kind of big thumbs up. Uh, we can't give the advice. So what are we doing on the air if we can't give you advice? We're edumacating. Hopefully what we say is going to add to your knowledge banks and give you the ability to make better decisions with this knowledge. Hopefully we won't confuse you more than you already are. Hopefully we can... Um, take the drivel and the chaos of the financial markets and make some kind of sense out of what's going on in the world for you. Um, and now it is, oh, oh yeah, we don't pay for this program. This is not paid commercial programming. What are we doing giving up our Friday or Saturday afternoon, or, or <laughs> I can't even say the right day, our Saturday mornings 
for this many decades without getting paid for it. We're supposed to be economists. What's going on here? Um, we consider this program to be a form of investment. Uh, we hire from the listening audience. We uh, have clients in the listening audience, and we believe that a better education causes people to make better decisions, and it's a little Adam Smith capitalism. When you leave people to do what's in their own best interest so long as it doesn't interfere with the adversely interfere in the interest of those around them, raise the whole society as if by an invisible hand. So there's an ethical context to capitalism most people don't get, that whole thing about not interfering in the interests of the others. Most people think capitalism is cutthroat. We're doing an investment in the education of the people that listen to this program. The word capitalism, uh, translated from Latin, means head-ism. Capitalism means using your head. <laughs> when you say capital markets, it's markets that you think about. And that's literally the translation. So we're adding to the capital market, hopefully, if you understand our drivel, I'm sorry, discussion, we're adding to it. And you've got another. Or we're diluting from it, one or the other. Yes, we might be. Yes. The dilution of the capital market could be going on right here. Yes, we may simply be adding extra uh capacity without any actual substance yeah we're kind of like a pair of large language models yes chat gpt has nothing on us we've been gathering information a lot longer and we can give a lot worse answers right we're good at that and further uh disclosure uh and disclaimer uh the information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable. However, we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. Right. Okay. So, Inquisitor John, thank you very much. We're very grateful to you. Uh, it lets us know that at least one person wants us to answer specific questions. Um, as is tradition, John has sent us an email with a digital picture of the paper Wall Street Journal with his handwriting on it. Um, he, his question, or the subject of the email, is term premium. And before you think this is about life insurance, hold on, that's not what it means. Um, his question is, does term premium apply only to government 10-year bonds and other government and private or other government and private company debt offerings. And he's got a, an article from the Wall Street Journal um, that is talking about, uh, well, it, it's, it's a rather in-depth article. I'll, I'll go right to what this means. The concept of term premium, anytime in economics, this is an economics term rather than a financial market term. I know that's a weird delineation. Anytime in economics somebody says premium, it's generally thought of as a reward for doing something. So if, you, um, if you're in the market, in the stock market, say, or stock and bond market, and you've made a, a profit above what you made at the bank over a period of time, in economics, that profit is called risk premium. You were paid for taking risk. Does everybody get paid for taking risk? No, some people lose all of their money and that's why they call it risk. Those of us that take risks and do well are paid for it usually. It's a concept based on uh, how we think of value. Term premium is the same thing. It's a concept, not a law. It's an attitude. And the attitude is, if I give you a loan, say you need a dollar to go buy a soda, a Coke, or whatever. 
say, hey, Jake, can I have a dollar? And I say, here you go. And you come back uh, and you've broken your five or something. You give me a dollar back. I didn't charge you for that. It was very quick. Why would I charge you? For, that was silly. I wouldn't charge you for that. Credit cards, famous for charging body parts for you to carry balances there, don't charge you if you pay them back in the same billing cycle. You were going to add something? They do charge somebody, though. Yes, they charge the, the merchants to use the card. Right, about so 1.5%. They, right, so they make some money. But if they're loaning you the money to do it with, they don't even charge you if you're paying it back within the 28-day period. And yes, that's what they use because it's the shortest month and so on. So there's other reasons behind it as well. Why don't they charge you? Well, because they didn't really take a lot of risk. You paid it back right away. No big deal. So that's a concept. Could they charge you? Well, right now there's some laws that say they can't because of this term premium concept. The longer that you hold debt or give a loan, the longer the person that gave you the loan has locked the money up. They don't have access to that money. So for them, the longer it's locked up, the more risk. What happens if they need that money in the middle sometime? They might have to go in de into debt to get that money. So the longer that the debt is locked up, the higher pay they expect to receive for locking that money up. And if you look at a mortgage right now, a 15-year mortgage is less expensive in interest than a 30-year mortgage. We've been talking about an inverted yield curve about how the short-term rates are paying a higher rate than the long-term rates. This is the backwards concept of term premium. You would expect people that are would want to be paid more for giving you a loan for 30 years than for giving you a loan for 30 days. And that's backwards right now. So that article that John's talking about here, and he, he says, does term premium apply only to government 10-year bonds? Because the article goes really into depth talking about 10-year treasuries and and uh, those and how they work and um, and how the the term premium is on it but they don't go in any depth about what term premium is um, one of the things that you can look at as a leading indicator is the difference the spread difference between uh, short-term debt and 10-year debt or short-term debt and 30-year debt. Um, and that's actually in the conference board's index of leading economic indicators. The spread between those two, when it's reversed, is a really big negative. They think this is bad for the economy. And it's been bad for the economy. Uh, so that's what they're talking about, term premium. And it applies to any debt. You should expect to pay a higher interest rate for longer-term debt. That doesn't mean it always is the case, but it is an attitude of why would why would someone want to give you a loan for longer term and receive less money for it? Doesn't mean they don't do it. If you look at what's happening in the whole big white yeah. world, they are flooding money into the U.S. bond market from all over the world because it's safe. And that's keeping the long-term interest rates lower than the short-term because the Federal Reserve is selling bonds or it's actually bills into the short-term side, which is making those rates really high on the a short end. less than a year ago, we bought an RV. We had a big down payment. Mm -hmm. And I was going to borrow the rest of it because interest rates were quite low. And I was amazed to find that a 15-year loan carried a lower interest rate than a five-year loan. In other words, borrowing from the bank. The bank was going to charge me more interest, a higher interest rate, if I only borrowed the money for five years than if I borrowed it for 15 years. I went ahead with a 15-year. I can pay it off early. Yeah. But that is weird, weird, weird. And that's one of the things that people tend to do is if you say, hey, I need a five-year loan on my car, 
and you look up and you could get a 10-year loan at lower interest rates, if you just applied the same payment, you'll get it paid off in like four years instead of five years. So this is this is not a permanent situation. People that are able to look at this and game the system are doing it. Uh, and this is the time period that you can actually do quite well if you're aware of what's going on. All right. I think I answered that. Uh, term premium is a, is a kind of a general economics term about why you should expect to receive more money for longer term loans than shorter term. And the danger that the article talked about is very real. Yeah. I think there's a very high probability that short-term rates will be coming down in 2024. However, at the same time, I think there is a very high probability that long-term rates will be going up. So when we return to a normal yield curve, which is, which in, which, which is what the article is about, that will give us a term premium so that longer-term interest rates are higher than shorter-term interest rates. I think at that point, shorter-term interest rates will be lower, but longer-term interest rates will be higher. We've talked about this before, but the cause of the extremely low inflation we have had for a couple of decades is the introduction of China into the manufacturing chain. You could make things much cheaper in China. We basically had a race for the bottom. We had discounts on top of discounts, on top of lowering prices, on top of lowering prices. It's over. We're going back in the other direction now. We're going back to what is basically a normal situation. And it's it's going to be more expensive to build things in these countries. It's continuing to be more expensive. The supply is not as reliable. And I think we will return to the historic level of inflation the, the, the population, according to a survey released by Moody's, believes that long-term inflation will be about 2.3%. I think it'll be closer to 3 uh, over a long term. Uh, and, and the reason is very simple. Uh, the economy works really well at a 3% inflation rate. And the Fed would like to bring it back down to 2 but I think they're going to have a – we would have to have some kind of recession to bring it back down to 2 And I don't think we're going to have a recession, and I don't think they're going to bring it back down to 2 I think it will probably hit 25 and they'll be pleased. Uh, but that means that longer-term interest rates will rise because if you're going to loan money and, – and the reason the government bonds are, are there is because at least theoretically you have 0% chance of not getting the dollars back you loan. So if you, if you loan $1,000 to the United States government because you bought a bond, or $10,000 because you bought a bond or a series of bonds, uh, then you expect to get your money back and the dollars will come back. But what you want to be compensated for is inflation. Right now, the long-term interest rates on U.S. government securities, which are considered to be ultra safe, is just below 4, 3.69, roughly 3.68%. Uh, I think it'll probably rise to around 4%. Why? Because what people figure out that inflation will run and the upper twos are around three. They want a little bit of additional compensation for that. And so they will, it will rise. Uh, and the, the article that John referred to, the danger for investors, is if you hold long-term bonds or a portfolio of bonds and interest rates rise, then the secondary market value, in other words, you go to sell that bond before maturity, you'll get less than you paid for it. And that's the risk. And I think it's a very real risk at this point, which is one of the reasons we're avoiding long-term interest-bearing securities. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, just kind of in the middle of this, we're talking about the short-term rates being so much higher than the long-term rates. Why is that? Well, 
the the largest single contributor by far there's not even a comparison it is way 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 beyond anything else in the bond market is the actions of the federal reserve when the pandemic hit the federal reserve was paying down its debt that it acquired during the great recession the global financial crisis um during the global financial crisis and at the end of the global financial crisis um the Federal Reserve went from having less than a trillion dollars of uh, of purchased debt, but mostly treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. They had about $888 billion sitting there, which is a huge amount of money when you think about it. $880, that's bigger than the Troubled Asset Relief Program, TARP. The big, big bailout that we did during the global financial crisis was $700 billion. So they had 888 before that happened before the global financial crisis. After the global financial crisis, the debt skyrocketed. It went up to about four and a half trillion. And then in um, 2018, they started uh, selling that debt back into the market in a very reasonable time period. In fact, if that had continued without the pandemic, they'd be on that trend line, they'd be about back to what they were pre-global financial crisis today. But then the pandemic happened. And we had about $4.1 trillion held uh, in, the, in the coffers of the Federal Reserve. What, why do they do this? When they buy debt off the market, if you own a, a U.S. government debt security, you're holding it and you say, I've got a, a bond or a savings bond or a 10-year whatever. And, then, and you get an offer to pay you more than what you, pay, than what you paid for it. You can make a profit. Why wouldn't you sell? So the Federal Reserve went out and was making offers to buy these things. And the so they pulled this debt off of the taxpayers' loans. So the taxpayers were giving these loans and the Federal Reserve bought them up. So now the taxpayer, the, the citizens of the United States, have more money in their hands. Somebody just gave them money for that bond. They've got cash so they can start to spend it. Well, we were kind of buying, uh, selling it back out there, pulling money back out of the economy at the Federal Reserve lo- level pre-pandemic. And we got down to about $4.1 trillion in, in, in the coffers of the Federal Reserve. We call that the balance sheet, by the way. After the pandemic hit, we went from about $4.2, $4.1 trillion on, uh, in, on the balance sheet at the Fed to just under $9 trillion dollars. So they more than doubled the amount of bonds that they owned. And then in, at the end of 2021, they started selling those back into the market. And since the end of 2021, they've sold about seven or $800 billion back into the market. That's about what their whole balance sheet was before the global financial crisis. To, to put that in any kind of reasonable term, it's, it's really not possible. The numbers are so big. It's almost a trillion dollars that the Federal Reserve has been selling. They're doing it at about $60 billion a month. And when they sell this stuff, it means they're not buying it. I know that's a pretty easy statement to make. Well, selling a debt and buying a debt. What is buying a debt? Well, it's making a loan. You're loaning things. If you're selling debt, you're pulling money out of the loan market. If you have a bunch of money and you want to loan it, you can do that. But once you've made the loan, you don't have the money to make another loan. If somebody buys that loan from you, you've got money to make a loan again. 
Well, what the Federal Reserve is doing is sucking money out of that system, which is causing the interest rate to go up. It costs more money to get a loan when there's less money to loan. It's supply and demand. And when we look at the short-term rates across the board, it's because the Federal Reserve is dumping $60 billion a month, rain or shine, into that system. And that means there's less money to make those loans. Even though we talk about this, a number of people leaving banks to go to money market funds. When that happens, those people are buying that debt that the Federal Reserve is selling. The banks have had a lot of trouble doing that because they've held a lot of longer-term stuff and they would have to sell that stuff in order to buy the short-term stuff. But when you sell it, it's going to be at a loss when you sell that long-term stuff. So the banks are kind of have their hands tied up where the money market funds are saying, hey, you give us new money, we'll buy short-term debt. It's no problem. It's easy to do. So that's where, that's where the markets are on the money side of things, uh, where the money is going. And people are beginning to spend a bit less than they were. Why? The consumers are more and more confident because they're getting paid more money in their money market. And when you're getting paid a, a good percentage on your money market, it's an additional cost if you want to buy something other than debt. You can get this interest rate. It's, you know, we're talking about five to five and a half percent in a money market position for just putting it there. And the, the numbers on inflation are coming back. These great numbers of now we're talking about 3% inflation or less. When you can go to a money market fund and get five and a half percent, man, that's amazing. Well, that's what's happening right now. Um, and it's why everything's upside down. They're just a huge gorilla in the room of the Federal Reserve selling massive amounts of debt back into the market. Uh, and they're doing it on purpose to suck that money out of the market on purpose to make it more expensive to buy used cars, to make it more expensive to buy houses because they saw a real bubble in the used car market and in the housing market where Prices were going up far faster than they should have been because people had extra money on hand and they had a massive demand and, the, and there was a shortage in the supply. So the Federal Reserve came in and destroyed that demand by making it too expensive. And this is where we're seeing, you know, it's funny that last month all over the place, I was seeing articles about the Federal Reserve has failed its fight against inflation. And this month, I don't see that anywhere. I'm hearing them all say, oh, look, it, it, it actually worked. They're, they're bringing inflation down. How did that happen? You destroy enough demand by making things expensive enough to get ahead of inflation. It seems like you're adding to inflation by making things more expensive. But you do it faster than people are ready for. And that's what stops the inflation spiral. Whoa, that's way too expensive. I don't want to buy that. And so people put it on hold and they say, I'm going to wait for prices to mediate. The interest rate and the price all went up at the same time. No thanks. So at some point, the shorter term rates are going to come down when the Federal Reserve isn't dumping stuff into the market. Um, they've got a long, long way to go to bring their balance sheet back down to what I think they would consider comfortable. Um, that's that. That's my long-winded talk about dollars and how they're moving around right now. There's a whole was, bunch of other good stuff to talk about. Well, one of the things that I think is, is 
even the so-called experts were and are getting wrong and they're finally coming back around. And the reason they called, there was so much call that a recession was going to come that hasn't showed up and I don't think will show up because they didn't understand what kind of an economy we're in. They don't, they don't understand the cause and effect. And that is where things get mixed up. You can't, certainly in the economy and perhaps in a lot of other things, you can't just knee-jerk say this cause always has that effect. Uh, you, you have to look back and see what's really going on. The The United States economy is going through a series of feedback loops, uh, switchbacks, uh, whip cracks. Uh, Jake refers to them as cattails, uh, where you, if you hold a cat's tail that was twitching slightly and you hold, the longer you hold it, uh, the more when you let go, it's going to whip violently back and forth. Right. Yes? So basically what that means is if the government stabilizes a price and says, hey, we're going to fix that price for an extended period of time. You can see it in gold prices. Uh, after we went off the gold standard, gold prices got extremely volatile, far, far, far more volatile than they were before we were on the gold standard. Um, anytime a, an institution fixes a price for a long period of time, when you let go, it's just like if you're gently holding a cat's tail to keep that little twitch from occurring. If you've ever sat next to a cat, and it's sitting in the sun and just the very tip of its tail is twitching a little bit. If you, as the governing force, reach down and calm that, just put your hand on it gently and hold it there for just a little while. When you let go of that cattail, something is going to happen. And that's what happens with the markets in every market well, where there's fixed pricing. In this case, it wasn't the government that fixed the pricing. It Correct. was the disruption, the external disruption caused by the pandemic. Uh, people blame, want to blame everything on the government, but the pandemic was not the, the United States of America did not cause the pandemic. Right. Uh, I don't think anybody caused the pandemic. It happened. Uh, and the point is that we had an external event occur and it caused a surge in pricing. It caused a surge of goods. It caused a surge in not spending money. The, the, the People have blamed the uh, stimulus programs in the United States. They blame inflation on that. All I got to say is there was not a stimulus program in the United Kingdom. There was not a stimulus program in the European Union. And the European Union is really happy now to announce that their annualized and their annual inflation has come down to 7.9%. They're really happy about that because a year ago it was 10.9%. Um, the we have less inflation than they do and we had the we had the stimulus and they didn't we have come back quicker from the downturn than they did because we did have the stimulus stimulus as it turns out was probably a very good idea now we won't know for many years the total after effects but the point is when we surged back the consumer and the economy behaved very differently than it does during a a downturn that's caused by the interest rate cycle. We have what is caused, or the interest rate or supply and demand cycle weaves up and down. Those are normal recessions. We have them every few years. Uh, we have a boom and we build too much of something and then we got too much of it and we have to start getting rid of it. And people who borrowed money to buy to build too much stuff go out of business and they start laying people off. We have a recession. Interest rates come down. Uh, people start piling back in. And by the way, while those interest rates are coming down, the banks get in trouble because a lot of people are, def are defaulting on loans. So they have to have things seized and the things that are being seized, the collateral is being seized, isn't worth as much. So it pushes everything down and then it comes back and we go through this cycle again. And the, one of the main jobs of the Federal Reserve is to dampen out that cyclical activity. Uh, we've done it over and over and over again. Well, this is very different. And the reason, one of the 
things that's come out very clearly right now is when we look at the long-term interest rates, the, the rates that banks are charging for loans have not gone up a lot. And loans, they're not making that many loans. So we didn't have an interest. We probably erased the interest rate cycle recession we were going to have anyway because we had a really big pandemic recession. And so what's driving the train here is very different from what drives the train and has been driving the train before, except, and I'm fortunately old enough, unfortunately old enough to remember this, 1973, we had a recession, 73 and 74. Why did we have a recession? Why did the stock market drop 50%? Because we had an external event cause the downturn. What was the external event? In 1971 and 72, I lived here in central Texas and gasoline was 25.9 cents at Shamrock. 25. The big 25 and little nine. So it was a quarter a gallon from my perspective, although it was actually 26 cents because of the way they marketed it. And we just got used to the fact that you could buy four gallons for a dollar. And you literally would go in and when I was poor, you could drive into a gas station and somebody would come out and pump four gallons of gasoline in and you'd hand them a dollar and drive off. Um, that wouldn't work real well today. Uh, you'd only get a third of a gallon and nobody comes out to pump it. But if you can imagine, it went very quickly from 25 cents a gallon to a dollar a gallon due to the Arab oil embargo. That would be the equivalent. And when I say it was an outside shock, it would be equivalent today. What oil, what is gasoline around 350 average, yeah, that's, you think? that's roughly oh, right. Yeah. So if gasoline went to $14 a gallon, that would be the equivalent to the economic shock we had in the early 70s. It's an external shock. And we had a 50% drop in the stock market and a bunch of whip flash back and forth events occurring in the economy during the 1970s. Inflation went high. The Federal Reserve really didn't know what to do about that. And they kept thinking it was going to come back down. Uh, it didn't. Uh, and Paul Volcker finally stepped in and raised short-term interest rates to double digits and put us into not one, but two recessions. Uh, and inflation has been coming down ever since. But we just had another event. Inflation jumped again. This time, the Federal Reserve, because they knew what happened last time, took appropriate action, and things are turning around very nice. And of course, we don't have an Arab oil embargo underway. That helps tremendously. Uh, we don't have a monopoly, somebody, an external monopoly on oil prices. We are now the largest oil exporter, exporter yeah. in the world. And so things have changed a lot. But this type of what we're experiencing is not abnormal for this type of economic situation. It's just been a really long time since we've seen this type of situation. And for better or worse, the people who are setting policy and the people who are trading on Wall Street, generally speaking, don't remember the last time. And George Santayana's wisdom that those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it is written in large letters. Uh, fortunately, at the Federal Reserve, they have read their history, and I think they're behaving very responsibly, and I think they're doing a very good job. And that's all I have to say about that. Yeah. Um, this is just a quick statement. I'll do some demographics on the Labor Department. The big demographic side of things that I wanted to talk about is something fascinating is happening. We are now more employed than we were before the pandemic. Yep. Um, uh, the percentage of the, the people aged 24 to 54, 25 to 54, which is the prime working age, is up about 
2% as a percentage of the population above what it was pre-pandemic. And the, where is this coming from? Because we were talking pre-pandemic about where we were running out of people. Um, during the pandemic, a lot of people stayed home. How's that for an obvious statement? <laughs> Everybody stayed home. Coming back to work, men came back to work at a much faster rate than women. And usually when we look at the Labor Department news and so on, that those divides are getting smaller and smaller because you're doing computer work. You don't need to have big biceps to do computer work. You don't need to have a bald head to, to uh, do an analysis on a spreadsheet. Anybody can do that. Uh, women, what? men, it's amazing. I know. It, it, so coming back to work, uh, labor force participation from the women was much, much, much lower. But in since 2022 began, mothers and fathers are listed differently. And there are more mothers at work right now than fathers at work right now, which is amazing. This has never been the case since we've been measuring it. And that's a cool little bit of information to hold out there. And we're about out of time for this hour. So a little weird piece of demographic trivia there are now more mothers employed than fathers employed in the prime working population. Wow. Kind of cool. I don't it know is. why. It's just very fascinating. There's all kinds of things that could come out of there's that. Some, there's some reasons for that. Yeah. Uh, but we're out of time, so we'll talk to you again next hour. But if you'd like to talk to us off the air, we actually do give fiduciary investment advice and portfolio management for people of relatively high net worth. Um, the local number, if you'd like to talk to us off the air, is... 254-947-1111. Or toll-free, 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN, should you still have a landline. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, where you can see our famously made-for-radio faces. You can see our wonderful staff. You can read our philosophy, our newsletter. Sign up for the newsletter. You can contact us through the contact form, read, uh, uh, listen to our radio programs going back. You can find our podcasts anywhere you find podcasts. Uh, until next hour, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach. Thanks for listening.